So we are in the 1640s in England, uh, which was a time of major upheaval, a time of civil war, uh, a time where um, the English parliament uh, basically you know, claimed their own authority and eventually the king at the time, Charles II, was, uh, Charles I, sorry, uh, was ultimately beheaded. Uh, they didn't like him. They wanted to get a replacement. And a lot of stuff was going on during the 1640s where, um, most notably, uh, the English Parliament, who had called the Assembly of Divines to come to Westminster to draft a new confession of faith, um, they were also uh, publishing a lot of material, a lot of, a lot of material that hadn't been published before because Charles I would have said, I don't like that so much. So material uh, such as the commentary by Thomas Brightman, on the book of Revelation, which spoke of a future millennium, or works by, uh, by Joseph Mead, who was a premillennialist. And it was, uh, as people were begin reading, began reading this, there was all sorts of, sort of the, the cat was let out of the bag, the can of worms was opened, and all of these new ideas were floating around in England uh, where uh, there was this millennial fervor that was being whipped up. And so we talked about Thomas Goodwin, um, uh, one, of, one of the members of the Westminster Assembly, but prior to that, he had spent some time in Holland uh, while in exile. Um, Goodwin is uh, attributed to uh, having delivered a sermon called the, A Glimpse of Zion's Glory, which has been characterized as an independence manifesto. So you'll recall um, both amongst the Scottish Presbyterians and amongst the English independents, those who wanted to have their own uh, break away from the Church of England and have each local congregation have its own autonomy, that's, that's, in, that's the, the, their ecclesiastical view, right? We saw, we saw this merging together of their eschatological views, their end times views, with their ecclesiology, their view of the church. And those, those two things were, were so intimately tied together that in order to realize their, their eschatology, they need to realize their ecclesiology. And we saw that tension that was already kind of baked into the cake in the Solemn League and Covenant, right? Uh, that the, that the, the Scottish Presbyterians insisted that the English Parliament sign off on, and they, they, uh, they, they swore and united themselves together uh, to have the, uh, the, the three kingdoms to the nearest conjunction in uniformity in religion, confession of faith, form of church government, and they say, after the example of the best reformed churches. The problem here is they don't define which are those best reformed churches. Is it, is it the Presbyterian churches, like the, is it the, like the church in Scotland? Is it uh, the churches uh, in, in the Netherlands? Or is it like the churches in the New World, in the colonies, which are independent, right? And so even as they're signing off on this, there was some equivocation going on here uh, where uh, they were actually not fully agreed. There's splinters in the Puritan movement already. And this, this uh, division, this fracture gets spread, uh, gets uh, opened up entirely with the rise of the English independence and their uh, anticipation of uh, this realization 
of the millennium. Uh, so Thomas Goodwin predicted ap- apocalyptic judgment would begin in 1650, and the millennium would begin in 1695. Um, meanwhile, over in the colonies, you have men such as John Cotton. Uh, perhaps you've heard of John Cotton. Um, he, he had this idea of, in, he was an independent, and he carried on this dream of independency in, uh, in New England. So those new, the, you know, what we think of the New England colonies, those were predominantly uh, populated by independents who wanted to break away from, uh, from the Church of England, not just for the religious, uh, not just for like religious freedom, but in order to realize the millennium. So this is the, the city on the hill that's going to realize this, new, this millennium, this, this kingdom of Christ. Um, back in England, uh, there was a group uh, known as the Fifth Monarchists. Um, the Fifth Monarchists, who get their name from uh, that prophecy in Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. You'll recall in Daniel 7, uh, Daniel has a vision of of four beasts, right? And each of these beasts um, uh, represent a kingdom, uh, a world power that comes and goes. Well, they called themselves the fifth because they saw themselves as the kingdom uh, which uh, the eternal kingdom that the Son of Man receives, right? So the fifth being the the fifth and final kingdom, okay? So this group, um, it was uh, sort of this amorphous group of radical millenarians um, drawing from both independents and also Baptists. So here you see um, the rise amongst um, of Baptists who are sort of even more independent than the independents, okay? You know, they, they, uh, the independents wanted to get rid of, of the Pope and prelacy and Presbyterianism. Um, the Baptists are saying, we want to get rid of all that plus infant baptism. Okay? And uh, so you'll see in the Baptist Confession of both 1644 and 1677 a very strong assertion not only of denial of infant baptism, but the other major revision they made to the Westminster Confession was that on the church and church government. So you wonder, what is it with, with this, you know, this denial of infant baptism with this strong affirmation of, an ind- of independent churches? You see now, you see how that came to be because they, were re- they wanted to realize this millennium, which would be a purely independent, um, all churches would be independent in this millennium. Um, the, the fifth monarchists started, they were, they were radicals. Um, they may even kind of be classified as terrorists in some instances. Um, they got pretty, you know, pretty out there. And yet men such as Goodwin, men such as John Owen, um, uh, you know, amongst the, the Puritan, independent Puritans, they, they had this sort of uh, touch-and-go relationship with the Fifth, with fifth Monarchists. Um, and, and the thing with, the, with them is the, the Fifth Monarchists saw themselves, themselves, rather than bishops or parliaments, as the divine agents of ushering in the millennium. So out with the godly prince theory that, you know, all we need is a godly prince who will realize these things. They're saying, no, we're going to do it ourselves. So some of them taking up arms. Um, getting back to that vision of the millennium that, that Thomas Goodwin set forth in, in that sermon, A Glimpse of Zion's Glory, and in some of other, his, uh, his writings, um, he spoke, quote, of that time 
that is such a that such a glorious presence of Christ as shall, as shall so instruct them as they had not need to take heed to the word of prophecy. The presence of Christ shall be there and supply all kinds of ordinances. So here's this recurring theme amongst people who who you know had this millennial vision. They look forward to the time where Christ would be there in person. And if Jesus is there in person to teach us, then what do we not need? We don't need the word, and we don't need the sacraments. Jesus himself will, be, uh, will supply all kinds of ordinances. We don't need to heed to old prophecy. We'll have new prophecy with Jesus. This was, uh, this was seen uh, in uh, Joachim of yours vision of the age of the spirit. No more word and sacrament. The Anabaptists, same thing. And so even here amongst otherwise very solid Puritans who spoke very highly of word and sacrament, right? they, they were looking forward to the day where we wouldn't need that anymore. And this drew the ire of a man by the name of Alexander Petrie. It's, it's important to note, you know, this, the 1640s, there's a lot going on, a lot of um, what we might call interesting um, eschatological views. But by no means should we understand everyone to be influenced by millennialism. Um, Alexander Petrie was a Scottish Presbyterian who ministered to the English or to English-speaking exiles in Rotterdam, and he wrote a book, uh, a treatise called Kiliastomastix. Uh, a mouthful. Um, Kiliasm, of course, is another term for millennialism. Um, this word, mastix, refers to somebody who is opposed to. So mastix is Greek, or literally means a whip or a scourge. So he's the, he's the millennial scourge. <laughs> he's trying to put down these, this idea of millennialism. Um, he described this new millennial movement as old Jewish fancy and Serinthian fables. Serinthius was an ancient church heretic who spoke of a millennium. Uh, he said, old errors are like old whores. That is the more to be abhorred. So, you know, he's, you know, he's, he's wearing his uh, opinion on his sleeve. Like, he's saying, that, you know, this millennial thing, bad news. Um, one thing that's interesting uh, that he actually fought against was this notion this understanding of Romans chapter 11, where it says, in all Israel will be saved. He says, doesn't Paul already teach us that Jew and Gentile are children of Abraham? And so this, this understanding which had crept, which had made its way over to the British Isles, that, that this latter-day mass salvation of the Jews, Petrie said, no, no, that, that just refers to the church, Jew and Gentile, all who come to Christ by faith. So sort of recapturing Calvin's view. Um, so I mentioned Petrie not because he was necessarily well-known. You probably never heard of him, but he, he's an example of, of people who, you know, not everyone was, was jumping on this millennial bandwagon. Okay. Any questions? I'll pause there, see if there's any questions or comments so far. Okay, so how I want to, um, what I want to transition to now is, is the confessions of faith that were drafted during this time. 
You'll recall that uh, when we were getting into the Reformation period, I cited two confessions, um, the, the Osberg Confession and the Second Helvetic Confession, both of which uh, condemned millennialism as Jewish dreams. Uh, this idea of a golden age, they say, no, that's, Scripture does not teach that. Okay? So early Reformed confessions um, not only did not promote a millennial view, actually they outright condemned it. Okay? Now getting to the Westminster Confession of Faith, where you have all sorts of millennial views represented, you have premillennialists, you have what we might call postmillennialists, you have uh, definitely what we would call amillennialists, and, and you know mixtures of in between, right? People kind of going back and forth and riding the fence. What's fascinating is what you what is what we don't find in the Confession of Faith. It's brevity, it's simplicity. Okay, so I would I would turn your draw your attention to chapter thirty three of the Westminster Confession. If you have your Psalter hymnals, it's page uh, nine hundred thirty nine. This is the very last article in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And, and, you know, this would be, if if they wanted to insert something uh, about a future millennial age, this is where you would read of it, presumably. But notice here, in 33.3, we read this. As Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity, so will he have that day unknown to men that they may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord will come and may be ever prepared to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. They're echoing the words of Revelation chapter 22. So it's fascinating that, you know, for what we find in the Westminster Confession is, you know, what what is not there? You don't have any of these grand millennial views being incorporated. And perhaps, you know, that was on purpose because they agreed, well, we can't agree on this, so we're not going to put it in, right? But finishing on this, this sense of the imminency of Christ's return, that we don't know when Jesus is going to come back. We need to be ever ready. And we need to be ever watchful and praying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's a very, it's a very uh, um, I mean, I would say biblical, but um, fascinating that that is what they end on. Right? That's how, that's how you know, we end our confession of faith. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, amen. So Westminster Confession, 1640, it was 1646, right? Later on, um, these independents, so men such as Thomas Goodwin, men such as John Owen, um, who sort of, they come to power um, through Oliver Cromwell, who becomes the, protect, who has, becomes the protector of England, so there's no king on the throne. Um, and they have opportunity later on, in 1658, to draft what is known as the Savoy Declaration. Sixteen fifty-eight, Savoy Declaration of Faith. This is dra- this was uh, principally written by John Owen, 
And clearly, it draws from the Westminster Confession of Faith. So if you, if you take the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Savoy Declaration, you see find a lot of overlap. They, they take cut and paste. Most of the content of Westminster Confession is in the Savoy, except there's some slight changes, refinement, and some um, even, as, as you'll see here, um, completely new articles. And the article that is most fascinating here is uh, chapter 26, 5 on the church. Now, here you would see uh, some significant changes in that these are independents, so they want to go out of their way to explain their ecclesiology, okay, that every church is going to be independent. No, no presbyteries, no bishops, right? Independent churches. But this is, this is uh, 26, 5. We read, as the Lord in his care and love towards his church has in his infinite wise providence exercised it with great variety in all ages for the good of them that love him and his own glory. So according to his promise, we expect in the latter days, Antichrist being destroyed, the Jews called, and the adversaries of the kingdom of his dear son broken, the churches of Christ being enlarged and edified through a free and plentiful communication of light and grace, shall enjoy in this world a more quiet, peaceable, and glorious condition than they have enjoyed. So here you have for the first time amongst Protestant uh, confessions of faith, um, Actually, not the first time, because the Baptist Confession, 1644, says something similar to this. But here you have amongst, uh, you know, the Puritans, an expression of confidence that in the latter days, when all of these things that they're expecting, the Antichrist to be put down, the Jews called, you know, um, the kingdom, kingdom coming in, that the church in this world will enjoy a more quiet, peaceable, and glorious condition uh, than they have enjoyed. Here you have an expression of a millennial hope. Now it's it's subdued, right? They don't they don't actually reference Revelation chapter twenty. They don't mention anything about a millennium per se or a thousand years. Um, they just say it's a more quiet, peaceable, enjoyable time, right? But you knowing what these guys are writing elsewhere, you see that they're putting it down on paper. Okay. Um, so very, very fascinating development. I mentioned also uh, the Baptist Confession of 1644, which, like the Savoy, has an expression of a millennial hope. What's fascinating is later on in 1677, uh, when uh, they draft, with the, the Baptist churches draft a new confession, also borrowing very heavily from the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, changing most notably the chapter on baptism and the chapter on the church. What's interesting amongst the Baptists of the seventh of uh, later on, 1677, is they don't have the Savoy Declaration. They don't adopt this language of a, a millennial hope, even though the 1644 one did. Now, what's changed? Well, they have the benefit of history, <laughs> right? The war's over. Charles II's on the throne. Um, 1640s are over. And so perhaps maybe with the benefit of hindsight, they realize, well, I guess the millennium didn't begin in 1650 
right? Or, you know, they, they're, they're perhaps maybe we're able to learn a bit from history that even though they might personally hold these views, they're not going to put it down on paper for their confession of faith. So that's, that's a you know, helpful lesson, I think, for us. And we could be thankful for the Westminster Confession for what's not there. <laughs> um, any questions or comments? Yes, Shane. seems, from what we know from history now, looking back and also having hindsight more folks of today, that we have more perspective, even our theology can be more uh, concrete in regards to coming back to our biblical ethic. Mm, yeah. Not learn from history on these rabbit trails and trying to like, you know, I don't want to be like everything else that we've seen <laughs> up to today. Um, it's, I, I, first of all, I really enjoyed it because I didn't know any of this, and it helps because some of us that have come out of other denominations, they still let's say the Baptist right, background, they, we, we get a lot of this stuff, but we don't really, we're not learning about it from a historical point. So I just want to say thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, the benefit, of, the benefit of hindsight is very important, but it's important to note that, that these Puritans, you know, you'll notice that they were very concerned about history. Um, you know, going back earlier on, um, you know, some of the, the earlier guys, you know, they were expositing history, as it were. Like, rather than having a newspaper in their hand and a Bible in another, they had a history book in, the, in one hand and a Bible in the other. And they also did live through times of intense persecution, right? But the, the, the 1640s are this unique time period in English history where, you know, everything kind of is... is you know, out of the bag, and um, all sorts of views are floating around, and, and pretty much everyone's expecting the world to end, or the, the kingdom of Christ to be established, right? Like, they're, they're expecting it to happen soon, okay? Um, now, we could continue, we could go on um, and go through, you know, get, you know, go to the present day of various millennial views, uh, but we're running out of time. And uh, we have our summer intern, uh, Mitch Watson, coming the first Sunday in June. And I asked him to, to do a Sunday school series for us over the summer. So we'll begin a new series uh, then, two Sundays from now, which means I have five minutes and one more Sunday school session to, uh, to explain what Revelation 20 actually says. <laughs> So we'll see if I'm successful in that. But um, we're not going to get to Revelation 20 today. But what I wanted to do is, you know, looking with that benefit of, of the hindsight of history, having, under, having, you know, looked at all these various views held in the early church fathers throughout the, throughout the Middle Ages during the time of the Reformation, there's a few things that I think every good um, end times view should affirm. So I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying... That, you know, uh, I, I think all of these things can be affirmed whether you're pre-mill, post-mill, or all-mill, okay? First thing that I think a good, millenn- or sorry, a good eschatological view should affirm is the goodness of creation. The goodness of creation. You'll recall that Irenaeus, the early church father who wrote against Heresies, most notably the heresy of Gnosticism, 
the, one of the main reasons why he affirmed a premillennial view is because he wanted to affirm the goodness of God's creation. The Gnostics were denying the goodness of creation. They said physical stuff is bad. What we need is to be freed from our body, freed from this world, and immediately go to heaven. And Irenaeus said, no, no, no. We, we look forward to a day where Christ will be here in person and will rule on earth. And, and the, the very same earth in which Christians were martyred, they will get to rule and reign, affirming the goodness of creation. Now, I would, affirm, I would suggest to you that we don't need a, 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 a premillennial view to affirm the goodness of creation. I think all views should affirm that because it's so clearly taught in Scripture. God created the world. He said it's very good. And God's purpose is, as we clearly read in Romans chapter 8, is that God has subjected this world to futility, but he did it in hope. In hope that creation itself will join together in the celebration of the, of the unveiling of the glory of the sons of God. What did Isaiah look forward to? Not floating around in clouds, you know, this ethereal existence where we're playing a harp, uh, you know, like Casper the Friendly Ghost. No, Isaiah looked forward to a new heavens and a new earth. And Revelation draws that together. Where, what, what's coming down? The new, the new Jerusalem where? Through the earth. So we affirm a good, the goodness of creation, and we affirm that at the consummation, God will finally uh, you know, uh, glorify not only us, but he will renew the whole world. Okay? So we affirm the goodness of creation. It's not an ethereal, spiritual existence. It's a physical. Heaven is physical. Okay? That's the first thing. Second thing I think we need to, uh, that all, any, any good biblical end times view is uh, affirm this idea of the two ages. Paul talks about this, where he talks about this present evil age and the age which is to come. He uses this throughout all of his writings. Uh, We see this uh, very clear affirmation is that there is this age, which is characterized by sin and a fallen world, right? It's the present evil age. But there's also the age which is to come, which will come, um, you know, ultimately be consummated when Christ returns. Okay? Now, um, it gets a little more complicated because, as the New Testament clearly teaches, in one sense, we already are living in that age which is to come, right? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's the, for, he's the foretaste of the new creation. So we live in this already not yet time, the time between Christ's first and second comings. So every view needs to sort of wrestle with that. This, um, the fancy term is semi-eschatological age. Uh, until Jesus comes back, it is a semi-eschatological age. It's not fully realized. It's not fully consummated. But we need to be careful. Um, we need to be careful about importing a third age between these two ages. This is the error of Jehoiakim of Fior, who said, um, there's an age of the Spirit which is to come. Or the Anabaptists, who said, you know, the time of the Father, the time of the Son, they're gone. Now we're in the age of the Spirit, right? Uh, Looking forward, anticipating a third age, which is different from the present evil age, but stops short of the age which is to come, the consummation. Scripture only knows of two ages. 
And the age that we are living in is a semi-eschatological age. It's not fully uh, realized until Jesus comes back again. Third thing that I think uh, all responsible biblical eschatological views is, is to affirm the means of grace. This is something that I suggested, uh, well, well, definitely was undermined amongst the Anabaptists who said, well, we don't need the word, we don't need the sacraments anymore because we got the Holy Spirit. And uh, even amongst some solid Reformed guys, the premillennials were saying, yeah, when Jesus comes, we're actually not going to need the word and sacraments. The Quakers took this to the next level and, and just did away with sacraments. They say, we have the inner light. We don't need the word, right? Um, If you look at Matthew 28, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. And what is he given to us to make disciples? Baptizing them and teaching them. Word and sacrament. Okay, Those are the two things that we have, word and sacrament, until Jesus comes back. (laughs) Until the end of the age. Right? So uh, any eschatological view... Should say, should say that we are going to be making use of these, diligent use of these, until Jesus comes back. There will not be a time before his return where we could dispense of these. These are the tools that Christ has given to us, where he's promised to be with us always. Right? Um, last thing, and I'm sure you can add more, but these are, these are the four ones that came to my mind. Um, any responsible eschatological view has to make sense of suffering and persecution in this life. Suffering and persecution. Getting back to Romans chapter 8, Paul says that we are sons of God, heirs together with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified together with him. So we need to understand that scripture says that, that you know, all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. It's not if, it's when. Um, and the role of suffering and persecution and faithful witness in this life being something that not we, we, we don't just grin and bear it. It's not something that, yeah, Christ's kingdom will be realized despite this. What does Paul say in Romans 8? In all these things, we are more than conquerors. So any view that says, well, you know, it'll be really great when we don't have to suffer anymore. If that's before the time that Jesus comes back, uh, you need to, I think we need to go back and search the scriptures and see if that's how Paul and the other authors of scripture speak of the role of suffering and persecution in this life. Okay, so we are, uh, we're out of time. And uh, if you have questions, you can come up afterwards or reserve them for next week when we will, uh, in 30 minutes or less, explain exactly what John meant in Revelation chapter 20. Okay, so let's, let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you that you have promised to be with us always, even to the end of the age. We thank you that you will never leave us or forsake us, and you watch over us in such a way that not even a hair can fall from our head without your will in heaven. We thank you that you have promised to build your church and that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Continue, O Lord, to gather your elect, to call both Jew and Gentile to yourself, and continue to bless us as we take up our cross and follow after you. And we ask all this in your name. Amen.